you have your Bibles with you, would you please take them out and turn to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. It's printed in the bulletin for you, but I'd encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to follow along with them. We're continuing today our series going through a selection of the Psalms. Today it's the quest for wisdom, looking at uh, what wisdom is, how it's defined for us in Psalm 90. And I'd encourage you, as you listen to this psalm being read, to think of it this way. Psalm 90 is essentially a reflection on the gospel. It's a reflection on the gospel. Although it was written by Moses some 1,500 or so years before Jesus was born, it is nevertheless his own words of praise, his own words of reflection on the grace of God that he had experienced in his life and how he had, had understood God's covenant faithfulness and blessings and grace on his people. So it is a song of Moses reflecting on the gospel. It's, it's, it's the only song of Moses that's in the book of Psalms. It's not the only song that Moses wrote that's in the Bible, but it's the only one that is in the book of Psalms. So let me ask if you're able, will you join me in standing for the reading of God's word this morning? Psalm chapter 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger, or your wrath, according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, this is your word, your perfect inerrant word sweeter than honey from the comb, perfect in all its ways, able to make us wise unto salvation, able to give us wisdom for all of life and for godliness, everything that is necessary. Father, we pray that your spirit will be among us now to take your word and to apply it gently, uh, wisely, skillfully to our hearts. And will you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see wonderful things here in Psalm 90, that we might treasure it up in our hearts, that we might practice it in our lives, that we might indeed do what Moses exhorts us to, and that is to gain a heart of wisdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Well, let me start by talking to our covenant children here who are here with us 
for a moment and talking to them about what we have here in Psalm 90. When I was 10 years old, my family lived in Illinois, and we were getting ready for the sake of my dad's job. We had to move from Illinois to California. We were moving to Sacramento. And I remember I wasn't real excited about that. I had a lot of friends that I was going to miss. I was going to miss my school that I was a part of. I was going to miss my little league team that I was a part of. And I didn't really want to move to California. And, and so to make it easier on us, on my brother and I, my parents promised us that when we moved to California, we would go to Disneyland. And so a couple years passed, but they made good on that promise. And, and eventually we went on a Southern California vacation and we came down here. And, and this was big for our family because... When I was growing up, all of our vacations were camping. That was what we did, and I liked camping, but this was big because we stayed in hotels on this vacation, and we went to Disneyland. This was unlike anything in our family history, and, and we got to spend two days at Disneyland, and that was huge for me. The first day we were there, we were riding the rides. I remember we sought out some of the characters. At that stage in my life, Goofy was my favorite character, and so we found the life-size Goofy and, and got our picture with him, and we saw the parade, and we saw fireworks, and it was a fantastic day. And, and we just, I didn't think about the time, I, I didn't think about anything else except having fun at Disneyland. Well, the second day started off the same, and we were having a great time going back to some of the rides that we had really enjoyed the day before. But around the middle of the afternoon, it, it sort of occurred to us, and, and my dad made us aware that this was our last day at Disneyland. We just had a, a little bit of time left until it closed, and, and that was our only day we had left. And so we had to kind of stop and think about what we were doing. Right? We had to consider how we wanted to spend the rest of that afternoon and that evening. What did we want to do? I want to go back to Splash Mountain, ride that one again. That was great. Did we want to go back to Space Mountain? Remember, those were some of our favorites. Did we want to go catch the parade again? That meant we had to be back to Main Street by a certain time. And so, because we became aware that our time at Disneyland was short, we had to gain a heart of wisdom. We had to think very carefully, how do we want to spend our time? Because we don't want to get to the end of our Disneyland vacation and realize there were some things we really wanted to do and we forgot to do them and then time was gone. And, and so what we had to do was to number our hours at Disneyland and get a heart of wisdom. And you see, in Psalm 90, this is exactly sort of what Moses is telling us. He's telling us life is like a trip to Disneyland. He says in verse 12, you hear what he says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. He says in all of life, sometimes when we're young we just go through life and we don't consider what we're doing, but he says you have to realize life is short. You'll get to the end of it one day. And he says when he looks back, he realizes how quickly it went. And so he exhorts us, especially the young people, he says, consider what your life is, number your days that you may gain a heart of wisdom. He says, teach us to number our days. Be wise in your youth especially while you are yet young. Seek wisdom. Be wise. Seek for Jesus. Seek for Jesus because you don't want to get to the end of your days and realize that that was the most important thing in all the world and you didn't do it. You don't want to get to the end of your life and have regrets that you didn't seek Jesus while you were young. There's a guy, some of you may have heard of him, his name is Augustine, and he was one of the church fathers who lived long, long ago, and in his autobiography, he wrote these words. You see, he had not been a Christian as a child or a teenager, and so he wrote these words reflecting on his youth. He said, too late have I loved you, 
Speaking of God, too late, O God, have I loved you. He was glad that he had become a Christian and sought Jesus and and trusted Christ later in life, but he regretted that he didn't do it earlier. He had wasted his youth. He didn't love Jesus when he was young. He said, too late did I love you. And and the exhortation of this psalm is, is, don't do that. Use your young days, your youth wisely. Get a heart of wisdom. Seek Jesus now. That is the best, wisest possible decision you can ever make He says, do that now. You see, like we said, Psalm 90 is a reflection on the gospel. It's a reflection on the gospel, and I hope that we see that as we go through this psalm today, that that's exactly what it is. Although he doesn't use the word Jesus or the word gospel, he's reflecting on this in three steps. And it's the three steps of the gospel. First, we're going to consider God. Second, guilt. And third, grace. God, guilt, and grace. Those are the three steps of the gospel, and those are the three steps in Psalm 90, God, guilt, and grace. So first, let's talk about God in Psalm 90. Psalm 90 begins with God. If we look at verse 1, it, it begins, Lord, Adonai is the first word in Psalm 90. And it's the first word, literally, we can just look at it and read and say, yes, that's it. That's the first word is Adonai, Lord. But it's also thematically the first word in Psalm 90. That's where this psalm begins. It doesn't begin with the consideration of us or me or myself. It doesn't begin with the consideration of man or sin. It begins with God. Lord, Adonai, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. And we need to think on that because that may seem like it's just a coincidence. Sure, the psalm starts with that word, but it's also the theme of this psalm that that life, it begins with God. And when we consider our lives, when we think about who we are, what we've done, when we think about our plans for the future, what we want to accomplish, or things possibly we have accomplished in life. We ought to think about these things within the context of God, how he relates to them, how he uh, oversees them. We need to ask, is God the measure of our life? Do we consider our lives within the context of God and his purposes? When we think about our dreams, are they in the context of God's plan and his desires for our lives? When we think about the way we spend our money, do we consider that within the context of God's purposes for money and his will for our lives? As we look back on perhaps our sorrows, do we consider our sorrows within the context of God's love, God's sovereignty, God's providential care for our lives? All of life is lived in God's world under God's watchful care. He's the context of our lives. Or does God become secondary in our thinking? Does he become secondary? See, that's the world that we live in. We live in a very anthropocentric world. That means man-centered. We live in a world where man is the measure of all things, where we refuse to acknowledge in our general uh, culture, we refuse to acknowledge anything outside of man, anything beyond man or anything above man. Man is the measure of our lives. And and so when we think about me and my life, I consider it in terms of what I want. What are my desires? Have I fulfilled my longings? And there's nothing beyond that to talk about. And so the natural consequence of that is that in our culture, our moral decision-making, just as a society, is a train wreck. Because we have no, no point of reference beyond ourselves by which we are judging our, our decisions. Uh, all we have to consider is me. Is this thing good for me, and is it good for my desires? There, there is no thought of an eternal and transcendent God in 
in whom we live and move and have our being, he's completely removed from the equation. And so it's no surprise that, that our public debates on moral issues are, are, are uh, just so far off the rails. When we talk about marriage as a society, when our culture thinks about marriage, we, we have no fixed reference point to think about this from. I saw in the news the other week that, that there was a story about a thruple in Massachusetts. Do you know what a thruple is? It was a couple of three people. A thruple, they're calling themselves. They're trying to have three people who are all married to each other in some kind of arrangement. And we say, where does this come from except that we have gotten rid of God in our moral decision-making? There was a video online this week, and perhaps some of you saw it or read about it, uh, of a woman who had gotten an abortion, and she filmed it and celebrated it as though she were giving birth. And she said, this is a great thing. And we say, how can that possibly be? That we just have no ability to make decisions or to make wise choices because we've removed God from the equation of our public life altogether. We think that divorce now just seems to be the expected thing in life. We recognize that for our society, fornication is just one of these things that people have started to celebrate and think this is now a good thing. And it's all because man has become the measure of all things. Man and his happiness is now the ultimate goal and God is largely ignored. And when we read Psalm 90 and it starts with God, there's a way in which Psalm 90 rebukes all of our foolishness as a society and because what it does is it reflects on life and death and it begins by setting it all in the context of a majestic, infinite, eternal God who is beyond us, who's created all things, who watches over all things and is sovereign over all things and says all of our life, everything we do and are is in the context under the umbrella of God, that he is the final reality with whom we all have to do. He exists. We see in verse 2, he says, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You see, it seems often in our culture about the, the most magnanimous we ever get is to think beyond ourselves, is to think in terms of the earth. Well, if we don't want to consider ourselves, we'll say, well, we have a responsibility to earth itself, or we have a responsibility to take care of the earth or to leave the earth to future generations, and, and that's true, that's good. But the psalm says, God is beyond that also. God created the earth. Before those mountains were ever there, God was. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. That I often feel like going into the mountains is a great way to regain some perspective. Uh, just to go into the midst of them and to see their, their size and to feel my own smallness is a great way to regain some perspective on life, to, to re-feel I'm not the center of everything in this earth because look at the grandeur that's all around me and to say there is a God who created all this. If the earth helps me to feel small, how much more God who is from everlasting to everlasting who formed the earth and the world. As Colossians says of Christ, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the context of all of the earth. He's the reality in which everything takes place. And so, even as we consider the gospel, we say this is a, a reflection on the gospel itself. The gospel always begins with God. It must begin with God. Even before, it, before we get to the bad news of, of me and my sin, before that, the gospel begins by pointing us to God, but by pointing out the reality in the context of our discussion, saying there is a God who's holy and just, he's infinite and he's eternal, he's unchangeable in his being, 
wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. There is a God, and we must start by thinking of God. And this is why we try here at New Life Burbank to design our worship service as a reflection of the gospel. So that's why at the beginning of our service, it always begins with the call to worship. That comes from the scriptures, because we want to start with God. And we, we don't start with the confession of sin. We think, well, that should be at the beginning. We have to confess our sins before we come into God's presence. But even before that, we start with God and we recognize that it's God who calls us to worship. God is the one who welcomes us to himself, who invites us to be here. And so we start with the call to worship and the song of adoration, where we praise God, the prayer of adoration. Only then do we become aware of our sinfulness and we have our confession of sin. And so we begin with God and we move to guilt. Verses 3 through 12 turns from considering God now to considering man and life under God. Man's life under God. Life under the sun, we might say. And according to Psalm 90, there's two problems for man, life under the sun, two problems we face. First, we face the brevity of our lives, that life is short, and that's a problem. And second, we face the sinfulness of life. It's, it's short and it's filled with sin. Verse 3 expresses not only our brevity, but it, it expresses something of our frailty when it says in verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. This is part of the problem of life is we're made out of dust. That, that's what our bodies are. They're made out of dust. If we can see perhaps verses 1 and 2 of this psalm are something of a reflection on Genesis 1 and 2, the creation story of God pre-existing the mountains and the earth, creating them out of nothing and God being eternal, we can say now, verse 3, now he's reflecting on Genesis 3. When sin enters the world and man's condition is now fallen and God says from dust you have come and to dust you will return. He says that's our condition as human creatures is that we are made out of dust. In contrast to the solidity, the permanence of God who's from everlasting to everlasting, as creatures, we're frail. Human life is fragile. We're made out of dust. Later in the Psalms, in Psalm 103, David actually takes comfort in that. Praying to the Lord, he says, Lord... You remember my frame. You know that we are dust. That's what we are. That, that is what life is, is we are made out of dust. It's a verse that's really well-suited, I believe, to humble the spirit of man. It's a, it's a good verse to take us down a couple notches when we're a little bit too puffed up with pride over who we are and what we've accomplished. What we've been able to do, this verse says, God will return you to dust one day. You're made of dust, and in a hundred years, if the Lord hasn't returned, we'll all be dust again. We are creatures. Even if we should do something very great and be remembered for thousands of years, verse 4 says, a thousand years in God's sight are but as yesterday when it's past. It's but a watch in the night. It's but a watch in the night. To us, even a few years seems like a long time to us, doesn't it? To us, a few years seems like a long time. When was the last time you undertook to start a project that you knew going into it would take more than five years? Very rarely do we start those kind of projects because five years seems like a long time. At least to me it does. At least to me it does. And, and oftentimes for, for children it seems even longer. I, mean, I remember when I was eight years old having the realization that it was another eight years before I could even drive a car. 
And I was depressed. Eight years till I could drive a car. That seemed like the longest time in the world. Uh, I'll tell you perhaps the most ridiculous thought I ever had. I remember when Judah was born, suddenly I, I was aware I had this new responsibility in life, this new task and this new calling. Ah, I was a father. I had to raise a son now. And I thought, wow, this could take a while. And I remember thinking this very thought. I was thinking, okay, you know, set aside some time in life to raise a son. Okay, in five years, and doing the math and thinking, in five years, he'll only be five. And ten years, well, I'll give ten years. Well, at ten years, he's only going to be ten. He won't even be a teenager yet. We won't even gotten to the real part of parenting yet. Ten whole years, and, and that's a ridiculous thought I recognized, but I remember thinking it and being surprised, this is going to take a while. Life takes a while. Ten years, 18 years, it, it takes time. Even a few years seems like a long time to us. We can't even fathom what a thousand years is like. But to God, it's a watch in the night. A watch in the night. There were three watches in the night, four hours each. And if you're like me, there's no hour of the day that goes faster than the ones when you're asleep. But that's what a thousand years is to God. It's his infinity. It's his eternity. Verse 5, again, expresses the brevity of life. It says, You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. That's life. It's but a dream. The New Testament says it's a mist that is soon gone. Life is short. You say, thanks, Pastor. This is a very depressing sermon for the day, I guess. Moses was having a pretty bad day this day when he decided to write his one psalm. But don't worry, it gets a little bit worse yet. Look at verse 10. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. So not only is, short, is life short, but it's also full of trouble. It's hard. It's filled with toil and trouble. If you think you're the only one who has a difficult life, take heart. The Bible says that's the nature of life. Its span is but toil and trouble, and then we fly away. They are soon gone. This is the reality of life under the sun. And if we ask, why is that so? Why is it that life is so difficult? Why is it that God has, has put us here on this earth only to experience a short and hard life? The psalm has an answer for us. It says life is not only short, but it's also marked by sin. It's not only short, it's also marked by sin. And verse 3 actually makes it plain when it says that God returns us to dust when we remember what that comes from in Genesis chapter 3. We remember that was not God's good original plan for man in the garden to return to dust. That was what happened after sin. That was what happened after sin and rebellion had entered the world. And part of the curse that it brought was that now, God says, from dust you are and to dust you will return. In fact, all these statements in the psalm that express the shortness and the brevity of life are not neutral, but they're all a result of God's judgment on sin. Verse 3, he says, God, you return man to dust. Verse 5, you sweep them away as with a flood. Verse 7, we're brought to an end by your anger. It is because of God and his wrath against sin that our lives are short and filled with toil and trouble. It's not the way God created the world. He created the world and said, this is very good. But sin and rebellion entered the world. And now, what is the state of man after sin? It's filled with sin and misery. Sin and misery is the state of our lives. Look at verse 8. You set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. It says, God knows all of our sins, even the secret ones. 
Even the secret ones that we think no one else will ever find out about, he says, you set our secret sins in the light of your presence. I, I just ponder as I read these words if maybe Moses was thinking of the time that he killed the Egyptian and buried his body in the sand and hoped that no one would find out. But God found out. God knew all along. One of the Israelites found out, but God knew all along also. For any of our secret sins, God knows of them. He sets them in the light of his presence so that we are accountable to God for these. What's amazing in this psalm to me is is that there's not even a hint of Moses complaining in this psalm. There's not even a hint of complaining. Although life is short and it's filled with trouble, he doesn't complain about it because he recognizes that God is perfectly holy and perfectly just. And so he recognizes in this psalm the onus is not on God to change his ways and to relent. The onus is on us because we're the sinful ones who have brought this condition on ourselves. And therefore he says in verse 11, who considers the power of your anger, your wrath according to the fear of you? Who considers that? I think we would have to second his question and say, yeah, who does consider that? Who considers the anger of God? Who spends time thinking, meditating on the wrath of God according to the fear that is due his name? Who thinks of that? But Moses shows us the way of wisdom. He says, when you consider the difficulties of life, when you consider that your years are short and filled with toil and trouble, rather than complaining, he says, consider the nature of God. Who considers the nature of God? See, we live in such an entitlement culture that, that we almost expect to read this and to hear Moses complain about the unfairness and the unjustness of God and to, to beg God to change and to do something else. It almost sounds funny to us that he doesn't accuse God. But instead, he accuses us. He vindicates God. He says, God is holy and just. Who considers his nature? We're the ones who are sinful. We're the ones who bring this upon ourselves. What a countercultural thought this whole psalm is. To consider the difficulties of life and say, God is just. God is righteous and God is holy in the midst of this. Verse 12 is a great turning point in this psalm. After pondering for several verses now, the shortness, the brevity, the sinfulness, the toil and the trouble of life, he says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. He exhorts us here to take heed of this. Consider the frailty of your life. Consider what you are. Meditate on that. What an unpopular idea this is for us today. Think about death. Think about the shortness of life. Think about your own mortality. Why? So you can gain a heart of wisdom. There's much wisdom to be found here. We don't like to talk about death a whole lot, do we? And I admit, I don't like to talk about death. It's not comfortable. It's not popular. It's not easy. We hear people these days even getting up into their 50s and talk about being in a midlife crisis. It's not midlife, unless you live a very long time, but this psalm encourages us. This psalm points us to the path of wisdom in thinking about this. Have you ever thought about how many of the songs that we sing in death in church have to do with death? Have you ever considered how often we sing? We sing about death all the time in church. Some of our most beloved hymns that we sing, Rock of Ages. When I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I fly to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Or another one of my favorites, 
I'll love thee in life and I'll love thee in death and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath and say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. What a vivid image that when the death dew is cold on our brow. We sing these words. Or another favorite from Thomas Kelly says, What is life? Tis but a vapor. Soon it vanishes away. Life is like a dying taper. Oh, my soul, why wish to stay? Why do we sing about death so much in church? Well, this psalm tells us. Because it's a a path to wisdom. There's much wisdom in singing about death and pondering these things. He says, teach us, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to recognize the truth of our condition. Teach us not to be ignorant of where we are and who we are, but teach us to, to have open eyes to reality. Why? So we can gain a heart of wisdom and in wisdom flee to Christ. He doesn't end with verse 12. He's considered God, he's considered guilt, and now in the last verses he considers the grace of God. The grace of God. This is where Moses ends by returning to God and asking God to graciously intervene, to save us. It would be depressing if he stopped here just pondering the toil and trouble that fills our life for these 70 or 80 years and then we're gone and we fly away. But what does that lead him to? It leads him to God. To go back to him, verse 13, return, O Lord. And notice in your Bible, hopefully the word Lord is all capital letters. This is the only occurrence in this psalm of the word Yahweh, God's covenant name. Verse 1, it's Adonai. Verse 17, it's Adonai. But here he says, Yahweh, Lord, covenant God, maker of promises and keeper of promises, return. Have pity on us. Have pity. And verse 14 here, verse 14 in my mind is the, the climax of the psalm. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. After pondering all of the troubles, all of the toil, all of the shortness of life, this is his cry to God, satisfy us with your love. And this is one of those places where our English translation just lets us down a little bit and doesn't do us justice to that word. It's the Hebrew word, some of you know it, the word chesed. Chesed, it's God's covenant love. It's his covenant love by which he has committed himself to love those people that he's in covenant with to love the people that he has promised to give himself to. It's the love by which God commits himself to do good to his people even when we sin against him. That's covenant love. It's the ideal for a marriage love that we commit ourselves. It's not an emotional love, but it's a commitment to do good and to love the other person even in difficult times. We commit ourselves to love them even when they sin against us. This word, it looks back to uh, Exodus 34, right after the golden calf incident. The people have just gone blatantly into idolatry and worshipped other gods. And Moses is then renewing the covenant with God, and, and he asks to see God's glory. He has to see his face. And God, of course, says, no, you can't see my face, but I will pass by and I will proclaim my name to you. And we see in that that he's going to proclaim his glory. What is the glory of God? It's what he says, and this is what he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Keeping steadfast love, it's the same word, keeping covenant love for thousands of generations of those who seek him and keep his covenants. 
He's saying, even right after the golden calf, after the people of Israel have sinned their worst, he says, this is my glory that I still love my people even when they sin against me. That's covenant love. That's steadfast love. That's the hesed that he says, Lord, satisfy us with that love that God can see us. He sees you. He sees you in your sin and your unrighteousness. All of your secret sins are set before the light of his presence and he would be perfectly just and holy in bringing down his judgments upon you, but his steadfast covenant love for his people causes him to turn to us again, to love us, to pursue us, to fight for us, to redeem us. That's God's covenant love. God demonstrates his covenant love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, satisfy us in the morning with your covenant love that pursues us and loves us even when we are sinful, even while we are yet sinners. That's what steadfast love is. It's God's covenant love that will not let us go. His love that sees our sin and it loves us anyway. It's the love of God that's shown at the cross where he considers all of our sins, secret and otherwise, and he takes them. And out of love for us, he puts them all on Jesus and he unleashes all of his just and holy wrath and anger on our sin on Christ so that we might live. That's what God's steadfast love is. That's what his hesed love is. And that's what Moses longs for. He just surveyed life and he said, Life in this world is nothing to long for. It's short, it's brief, and it's full of trouble, and we are made of dust, and to dust we shall return. But there is satisfaction to be had in the covenant love of God. That's why I say this psalm is nothing less than a reflection on the gospel. He's, he's considered God in his eternity. He's considered man in our sinfulness. And now he says, Lord, all we have is to hope in your covenant love for us. That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. And there's two last comforts that I'll just mention quickly. Two last comforts for those of us who are bound by time. That as God redeems us, he says in verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. That although we are temporal, we are brief, we are bound by dust and time, he says, God is a generational God. His steadfast love is not just for us, but he shows it to our children, to our children's children, our children's children, to thousands of generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. And so we are temporal, but God's love goes on. And in verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands that uh, we are temporal, we are brief, but God says that the work that we do is not in vain. The work that we do is not in vain. Building God's kingdom, serving the church, loving God and neighbor, teaching the next generation. He says, this is not vain work that you do. Though, though life is short and filled with trouble, these things matter for eternity. And so Moses teaches us, consider your life. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Let's pray together. Father, this is our, our desire and our plea today that we will consider you in your glory, in your beauty, in your holiness. We will consider ourselves 
and our sinfulness and our humanity, and that we will then most of all consider Christ, and that we will cling to him, clinging to his grace and his love, clinging to him at the cross, that he will be lifted up and we will find our lives not in ourselves or in our desires, but in Christ, in his accomplishment at the cross. For it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.